Hi everybody, my name is Christian Cison and I'm an attorney here at Lois LLC. I'm here to give a Defend from Day One webinar and it's the third of its kind. It's a special addition to our normally scheduled New York webinar program. The first two had a couple of sound issues so I'm glad that we are hearing everybody. Yes? Great. Okay. Uh, today I want to talk about defending additional sites of injury. Now you guys know these claims very well. These are the slip and falls because someone turned their ankle and now their back is involved in the claim. And in New York, we know that when schedule loss of use turns into loss of wagering capacity, exposure skyrockets. So we're going to talk about how to best defend those claims. This slide uh, is very familiar to our loyal webinar uh, registration participants. The question box. Real time, you can uh, enter questions into this uh, screen. It will come through to our end, and at the end of the presentation, I'll take a couple of questions and answer them live. So please don't try to trip me up. Now, we do know in New York, there's a presumption of compensability. And what, do, what does that exactly mean? Well, we know that if we do nothing after an accident happens, it's going to be presumed compensable. But that presumption applies to whether the accident was in the course of employment. This holding is actually affirmed in a 2007 appellate division case that stated that the presumption does not apply to whether the accident actually occurred. Now, there's a little bit of weird legal linguistic semantics, right? Uh, if you're saying that a presumption uh, applies to whether the accident occurred in the course of employment, but then again saying that it may not have actually existed, the reason those two are at play is because they're actually two separate defenses and the presumption actually uh, affords the claimant uh, a waiver from the carrier side, the defense side, of getting using that defense. Nevertheless, we know that we have to be a proactive uh, employer, a proactive insured, and a proactive carrier. If we are not, if we're merely reactive, then we face the threat of compensability. So how does that apply to additional sites? Now, I've talked a lot about recorded statements in talks and prior webinars, and that usually has to do with mechanism of injury, right? How can we figure out whether this actually happened, right? How can we figure out whether there were witnesses involved? Location, time, date even. Uh, for additional sites, they're used primarily for that purpose as well, right? I want to know if they're alleging an ankle, a foot, a shin laceration, a whole knee, is that consequential back, or I shouldn't say consequential, but additional site of injury uh, as the back or the neck being alleged from the outset, right? Because when the claimant changed in his history, we know very often that provides us with a good defense to argue credibility is not in the claimant's favor. Now, the recorded statement's best friend is the incident report. And like I said, I have used this plenty of times to dispute mechanism of injury and causal relationship to the claim sites of injury. But the reason why I'm putting this up here is I've actually seen recently success from uh, an employer's uh, strategy in defending from day one. We had a situation where an incident report, incident report was being filled out while a recorded statement was taking place. So you have individuals in the room from human resources, a supervisor, and the claimant slash employee himself talking about the incident as they're filling out the report, talking about the questions that are being answered, talking about what witnesses were in place, 
And that's almost like a double attack on this history that's being reported, right? You can't actually refute it in one manner. You'd be refuting it in two different uh, methods of communication to the employer. So that was an interesting uh, story that we learned from an insured, and we were glad that it provided them success in defending a claim. Competent medical evidence uh, is actually uh, what we uh, use to defend additional sites, right? And that's because, for once, the burden of proof is actually on the claimant. And I want to distinguish this between PFMA, which is uh, an acronym used in our industry that uh, most of you already know, prima facie medical evidence of a work-related injury. PFMA is a standard that has been destroyed over the years. Judges will actually state it on the record when we have a good PFME defense. Oh, counsel, the PFME standard has been lowered. There isn't that much that needs to get by to direct an IME on causal relationship. And that's actually true. That's supported by case law that is still good to this day. The standard is low enough that there doesn't have to be an, uh, great specificity in describing the history of the work accident, great specificity in uh, describing the cause of injuries, and that puts us on the defense, right? So we want to distinguish that from PFME. Competent medical evidence for additional sites includes the totality of the evidence being presented by the claimant, right? And what I'd like to highlight is initial hospital records. Initial hospital records are actually used by the claimant to allege compensability, right? They're trying to say that on the date of accident or the day after I got hurt, I went to, had to go to the emergency room. I couldn't work and therefore pay me from that date. Well, initial hospital records are important because when you go to the emergency room, you're not talking to one person. You're talking to the intake uh, person. You may even be talking to the EMT person in the ambulance. You're talking to a nurse, a physician's assistant, and maybe even a doctor if it gets to that level. That's four or five different histories of the same accident that we can investigate in terms of how, how high was the ladder from where the claimant fell from. Uh, where was the location of this accident? Was this outside of uh, a jurisdiction or a policy location? These things can be used to defend all sorts of things, but additional sites are important as well. Are they saying that they, got, they hurt their back or their neck to the doctor? Are they saying that to the nurse? When we can use the fact that they're telling multiple people and corroborate them with each other, it helps us to form a more definitive defense, a definitive plan. Effective cross-examination has to do with both the claimant and doctors, right? Every doctor that's receiving a history of an accident, if the red flags are up, I want to request to cross-examine all of them. And yes, it can be time-consuming and it does uh, incorporate a lot of work into doing that, but I want to make sure that there isn't one slip-up from one doctor that helps us with our uh, defense strategy, right? Because if there are two histories being reported, that's a red flag. We want to make sure that the history of the accident is the same and the additional sites are getting out at the earliest possible time, right? We don't want them to be slid in as an established site when the real accident has to do with just the ankle or just the knee. Cross-examination of the claimant is also helpful when we have incident reports that I just talked about. If they have to put their feet to the fire and say that they signed this incident report, they do not have a leg to stand on if they're also saying three months later that they hurt their back, right? So we want to make sure those incident reports get in. Uh, people know are, are very comfortable with uh, pre-hearing conference statements. We want to get that out that at the outset. Talk about what defenses we have and state how we are denying this claim. We do know 
however, that even when we deny a claim for late notice, and in this, this situation, late notice of an additional site, notice can be excused, of course, right? We're in New York. Section 18 gives them 30 days to give us notice of the accident. But keep in mind that also provides uh, the requirement for them to uh, give us notice of each site claimed, right? So if you accept a claim for an ankle injury on day one, day 32 occurs, you don't have to accept that back injury if that's the first time they gave notice of you, notice of that uh, injury. There are three times where notice would be excused, so let's go into detail about them. The first one is the inability to provide notice, right? So that's when a claimant can, is uh, in a coma or in a, in a hospital, uh, not discharged. Maybe they're at home and they can't move uh, and they can't actually provide the notice to the employer. That's important because that's actually uh, an allegation of a really serious injury that we would like to investigate anyway. But when they can't provide notice, it's, it, it'll be excused. Employer's knowledge is actually very simple. Uh, think about a a situation where the employer will witness the accident directly and he sees the claimant uh, clutch his neck or he admits that the claimant uh, requests a, a brace for his back. That's going to be important because then we know that notice is being provided maybe not in the form of section 18 but we have knowledge that the accident occurred. So notice is going to be excused in that situation as well. The third opportunity for notice to be excused is prejudice to the employer, right? So the claimant is actually going to be in there and stating that the employer did not suffer any prejudice by my late notice. And this is actually my favorite part of, of a denied claim in a trial because they have to prove that. The burden is on them to show that we didn't suffer any prejudice. And how hard is that? Well, we actually make it harder for them by producing witnesses, by producing incident reports, by producing surveillance footage, if we even have it, and then showing that we, our company policy is to uh, not secure those uh, surveillance footage after six months because we don't have time. If we have valid business reasons for encountering um, surveillance issues that have to be secured at a different location, or if, we, if uh, a witness has been uh, disassociated with the company and can no longer testify, that is prejudice on the employer. And if they claim it cannot prove that, then notice should not be excused. Okay, this slide uh, is definitely one of my favorites because uh, it incorporates all the defend from day one strategies at once here. And I'm gonna use it probably for the rest of my life. So hopefully you can get used to it. Reporting in groups, probably my number one thing. Uh, I just talked about that situation where an employer recorded a statement in the presence of a supervisor and the claimant while filling out the incident report. Uh, reporting in groups helps group think. It helps uh, more legitimate statements rise to the occasion as opposed to a claimant who's talking to human resources representative one-on-one -on -one who may not necessarily know the exact job duties or the exact project that the claim was in. It makes it more likely for the supervisor to accept the history of the accident as compensable. So reporting in groups with that uh, supervisor is very helpful. I did talk about recording uh, a recorded statement earlier, so I'll move on to the personnel file and the internal investigation that we do. Um, Personnel files are very important in denied claims in general, but for additional sites, FMLA leaves, uh, short-term disability, that 
can help in additional site, uh, with additional site defense because they might be out for a motor vehicle accident. Uh, they might be out for a recreational activity or, or a sporting league. Maybe you have a company's baseball, baseball team that they would injure their back in the course of playing a game. We want to make sure that that personnel file is forwarded to us to make sure that we can defend additional sites uh, at the full ex fullest extent. Securing a HIPAA is also very important. Uh, a lot of people don't do this at the outset, uh, especially if the claimant says, I haven't had prior injuries. We like to just cross our T's and dot our I's anyway, make them complete the HIPAA and sign over our lease for prior medical records because a lot of people legitimately don't remember about prior uh, accidents, or prior claims, or prior injuries. We want to make sure that we're investigating that to the fullest extent. Make sure that they give it to you and send prior records to an IME as soon as possible. And of course, best practice is just to call me, right, because I'll help you for free, at least initially, right? I'm going to talk about uh, challenging additional body parts as well because it's a common it's a common occurrence, right? It's not just something that's uh, an arcane piece of law. This is something that's actually happening still to this day. And my colleague, Jeremy Janis, actually has an article on our firm website talking about winning a trial on this issue, right? So we have his handsome face right next to the article. Uh, it, the article actually goes into a little bit more specific detail about how we defended the claim and the specifics uh, of the injury, but essentially, we used some defend from day one strategies to win at the trial level before a judge, and then we were successful at the board panel level, rebutting the claimant's appeal and getting the disallowance affirmed. So if you're interested in that, please go to our website. Uh, you can reach out to Jeremy uh, specifically for uh, the nature of that trial, uh, but I'd like to give him a shout out just because he did a good, such a good job on that case. But of course, now that I'm done promoting him, I have to promote myself. Right? Sorry about that. Uh, I do a podcast once a month, every third Friday, uh, and we talk about more high-level issues in workers' compensation. Right? These webinars are designed for uh, a 101 audience, and the 201 audience that has uh, more experience in workers' compensation uh, will certainly enjoy this and get more out of it. Uh, episode 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, 6 are there on the screen for you. Um, the last episode we did was actually uh, the employer's perspective in safety precautions and claim prevention. So I had a guest from National Grid. Uh, he talked about uh, supervising job sites regularly and talking about what National Grid does as a, a gas company to prevent claims and deal with accidents that happen during the course of employment. Okay, so now I'm going to get to questions. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we're defending from day one, so I hope you guys have some questions. I'm going to look to my lovely producer to read them out loud. Okay, first question we got is from Joe, and Joe says, uh, Christian, does the C3.3 work well as a substitute for a HIPAA release? That's from Joe. Okay, Joe, thanks for that question. Uh, to repeat it for everyone, he asked whether a C3.3 is just as effective as using a HIPAA. And it can be, right? A C3.3 is the board form that is used when uh, we want to get a medical release. It's not as effective as a HIPAA for our purposes, maybe not necessarily for the board's purposes, but a HIPAA is actually more expensive. So let's go into why. First, uh, the C3.3 is only required to be filled out by the claimant if he admits to a prior injury, right? If you'll see on the 
employee claim form, that's C3, not C3.3, there's a section on page two which allows them to acknowledge prior injuries. And the board then asks them if prior injuries are apparent, please fill out form C3.3 and give it to uh, the employer, the defense counsel, or the carrier. The HIPAA is a little bit more expansive because uh, it is uh, expensive with regard to psychological treatment as well, right? So if you look at the C3.3 itself, there's a section that allows a claimant to withhold psychological treatment or psychological records from us. And that may not be relevant in all cases, and that's why it's there, that's private to them, but it is, pro it is important to us when they're alleging consequential depression, consequential post-concussion syndrome. We wanna make sure that we have access to their prior psychiatric treatment, and a HIPAA is more expansive. Finally, we know that doctor's offices and hospital personnel are more knowledgeable about the HIPAA itself, right? They may not necessarily be well-versed in workers' compensation, so a C3.3 might not necessarily fit their internal obligation to release records to a neutral, well, I shouldn't say neutral, we're not neutral in that situation, but to a third party, a HIPAA is something that they know. Uh, so they will know exactly who to give it to uh, once we give them uh, that form. It's more knowledgeable within their industry, and that's why we like to use it in addition to the C3.3. Do we have a second question? Yes, we do. Mark says, uh, Christian, many consequential injuries manifest themselves a long time after the original injury. I don't know if the original accident report will help us, help us much that. What do you think? Okay, Mark, thanks for that question. Uh, Mark asked essentially if consequential injuries get manif uh, manifest after, you know, not from day one, but maybe from day 200, how do we defend it with an accident report? I don't, and you said that it's not likely to help. I agree with you, Mark, because essentially if a claimant is alleging a consequential site as um, in it, different from an additional site, then we have a different problem, right? We're saying we're defending the claim from uh, a gait from a knee injury resulting in a back injury, or maybe a gait affecting overuse, and maybe the other leg now becomes part of the case. So you're right, the incident report doesn't necessarily help to defend those consequential sites. So what we have to do in those cases is review the medical records. Medical record number one that talks about a new site is the most important one, right? Because the longer that a claimant goes, to his doctor or her doctor and states that I now have a back injury or I now have a neck injury. That doctor's credibility is built, right? And we, when we go to trial, we are faced with the prospect of having an IME that only looks at a consequential site after PFME is found before a judge. So it might be a good idea to have a records reviewer or an IME look at that first medical record before PFME is even found. We'll talk about a little bit about the practical aspects, um, you know, off off camera. You can certainly uh, ask me about that uh, by email because we can certainly assess practical considerations for not doing that from the outset. But that's a good uh, practice to have. Essentially, getting IMEs and records review doctors to look at new medical records as soon as they are filed. Okay, thanks, Mark, for that question. Okay, and do we have a third question? Yes, we do. And this question comes from Michelle. She asks. If an insurer has a union contract involved, will they have to review the contract before doing the court statement during the completion of that incident report? 
that's from Michelle. Okay, Michelle, thanks for that question. Uh, you had asked if whether a union contract would be involved and how that would affect a recorded statement. Well, it actually does affect that, and it's different from a non-union employee, right? So most union contracts have a clause in which a union representative has to be present during a recorded statement. Now, it doesn't affect whether you would ask that, but whether you go forward with taking that recorded statement is certainly different. So for union contracts, it might be a good idea to tell them about their opportunity to have a union rep with them, right? So you have a union employee, tell them that you are allowed to have a union representative while we take this recorded statement. Do you want to undergo this procedure? And whether they say yes or no can still affect the uh, response or, or the, uh, the red flag uh, that you have on this file. Whether they say, yes, I will bring my representative or no. And then we'll, we'll dig our heels in and we will uh, investigate the claim in a thorough manner. But thanks for that question. Uh, I think that's all. So I want to uh, tell everybody thanks for coming to this webinar. Uh, it is the third Defend from Day One webinar, and it's special edition to the New York series. Uh, the reason this uh, mantra has been embedded into my brain is essentially because a current client came to us and asked us to review their intake policies and procedures. So what I wanted to do was figure out if this was a problem amongst all of our clients, and it certainly was. Uh, so I've done some due diligence in doing some complimentary review of documents that our clients give to claimants on uh, the date of accident in order to investigate it thoroughly. So it is a service that I provide. If you, any of you are interested, please feel free to reach out to me, and uh, we can work together. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.